Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Here in Acts chapter 6, we're coming into a part of the book of Acts that is a a great turning point. Um, We we saw last time um, how the the church there at Jerusalem in those first few verses of Acts chapter 6, they chose out some men that are considered to be the first deacons. It doesn't use specifically the word deacon there, but clearly these men are appointed to the position that later in, uh, in the epistles would be called the office of a deacon. And uh, these, these deacons, in fact, the next couple of chapters really are going to focus on these deacons and not, just, not really the work that they're doing as far as that daily ministration goes in the Jerusalem church, but rather how, how you know, even these, these deacons, the, the apostles are there at Jerusalem and they're teaching that church at Jerusalem, but here uh, these men like Stephen and, and Philip are going out and evangelizing and doing many of the same miracles that the apostles were doing in Jerusalem. You see in, in uh, verse 8 it says in Stephen. Stephen is one of those men that was appointed there in, in uh, verse 5. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, here Stephen, notice he has a, a run-in, not with, the, not with the council itself initially, and not with the, the Pharisees and, and scribes there, but rather it mentions these that are of the synagogue, which it says is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and it says of them of Cilicia and of Asia. Now, these are Jews who are from these, these various other cities, and remember that the Jews had been scattered throughout the world, uh, but they're, they're here. I mean, this is taking place at Jerusalem, and so you had various synagogues in and around Jerusalem, and, and much like you might have churches where... Um, you know, in, in areas where there might be a lot of immigrants, you'll have churches that speak certain languages. Um, if you, if you uh, 
drive on, on Highway 21 over towards Toma, you go past, there's two churches side by side, and if you've ever stopped there to, to read the sign, what those two churches were is one of them was a German-speaking church, and I forget what the other one was. And the two churches are right, right next to each other, and, you know, German-speaking people would go to the one church, and, and um, other people would go to the other church. Uh, eventually, they kind of they joined together and all met in the one building, but in the same way you would have these synagogues in and around Jerusalem that would be, you know, be uh, sort of, sort of um, catered to these Jews who were associated with these other nationalities. Uh, it mentions, for instance, Alexandria there, and Alexandria is that, that uh, very prominent city in Egypt. In fact, it would have been even the, the capital of Egypt at that time, a city founded by Alexander the Great, and that was a, a great center of, of Jewish uh, learning outside of Israel. Uh, that's where, for instance, the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint was produced, was there at Alexandria. And so here Stephen, Stephen uh, has this run in, again, not with the, not with the, the Pharisees or, or uh, you know, those, those Jewish leaders, but here these synagogues of these, these Jews who had been in these other countries, and um, now we're here in that area of Jerusalem. And you see that, that uh, they dispute with Stephen. They, they first begin by disputing the things that he's saying. They, they can't dispute the miracles that are taking place. They can't dispute that. But they're disputing with him about the doctrine that he's teaching. They're disputing with him about the identity of Jesus as being the Christ, the Messiah. They're disputing with him, no doubt, about the resurrection from the dead. They're disputing about these things. And you see, in verse 10, it says, They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now that doesn't mean when it says they were not able to resist, it doesn't mean they believed what he said. It just means they came to a point where they realized we can't we aren't going to we aren't going to do away with what he's saying by disputing doctrine. We're not going to convince him. We're not we can't we can't uh, convince even these people that are listening to what Stephen is saying. And so they decide they're going to have to use other means to to take care of this. And understand that the same thing here with Stephen, where they couldn't resist what he was saying, when you just stand on the word of God, um, you, you can become a very frustrating person to the, you know, the religious professors of the world. Because they have all kinds of religious ideas that come from all different places besides the Bible. But when you just stand on the word of God, it, you know, they, they come to realize they don't have a good argument against that. And it can be a very frustrating thing for somebody who's based in, you know, man's tradition and man's religion to encounter somebody who's going to stand on the authority of God's word and who's going to call them to account to, to say, okay, show me that in the Bible. You have this tradition, you have this, this religious practice, show me where the Bible says you ought to do that. Okay? And, and that's the, the, the kind of frustration that these people have here with Stephen. And so not being able to, to counter the doctrine that he's teaching, they fall back on a very common tactic, in fact, the same tactic that was used to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. 
You see, it says in verse 11 that they suborned men, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now understand that if if what Stephen is saying about the Lord Jesus Christ, if what Stephen is, is teaching is false, then their accusation is true because he would be blasphemous. I mean, to claim that Jesus is the Son of God would be a, uh, a uh, blasphemous message if it's not true, right? Now, if it is true, then they're the ones that are committing blasphemy. They're the ones that are speaking against God and the truth of God's word. Um, but, but uh, you know, if what Stephen is saying is false, as these men claim, you know, then, then it would be a blasphemous thing. Uh, and so they come and they say he's speaking these blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Uh, verse 12 says, They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. Now remember the council, the council hasn't dealt with Stephen directly yet, but remember the council has dealt with Peter and with John and with other of the apostles. They've commanded them not to preach in the name of Jesus. The council is aware of what's going on here. You remember in the last chapter, what the council decided to do on the advice of Gamaliel, they decided they would kind of give him a little space, wait and see what was going to happen here. Well, here now, these, these, um, this synagogue of the Libertines and these other Jews are coming to the council and they're complaining. It's not just the council directly, but these other Jews are coming and complaining about what Stephen and these others are preaching. And and you see in verse 13 that they set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Now, uh, when, when um, it says, uh, in fact, continue on into verse 14 where it says, We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Now, that was the same accusation they used against Christ himself that uh, Christ said, you know, they, they brought in these false witnesses against Christ that said he had claimed he was going to destroy the temple and, and uh, raise it up again in three days, right? Now, Christ did speak words to that effect. He was talking about the temple of his body and how they were going to destroy him and he was going to rise from the dead in three days. But that was the accusation they used against Christ to put him to death. And here they bring the same accusation against Stephen. Stephen is preaching Jesus Christ, and they say that uh, Jesus said that he was going to destroy this place. Um, when it says, uh, he said he would change the customs which Moses delivered us. Now, most of the customs that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke against were not the things that Moses had delivered to them, but it was the, the uh, man-made traditions that the Pharisees had added to the law. But... Um, Again, you know, go to, go to a passage like, uh, go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Notice some of the things that, that Christ says here. Now, he, he says, first of all, in verse 17, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, 
but to fulfill. Jesus Christ didn't come saying he was going to do away with the law. He came saying he was going to fulfill that law. But what he does in the passage, verse 18, by the way, he also says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Right? Christ is clear that he's not there to change the law. But notice what he does in starting in verse 20, 21. Verse 20, he says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he, Christ is, he preaches a message here in Matthew chapter 5 where he's showing why the law is insufficient to make man righteous before God, right? And, and see, the Pharisees who emphasize the law, he says here, your righteousness has to exceed even that. The righteousness that those Pharisees have, as religious as they might be, as observant as they might be, it is not, he says, he says if your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, uh, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he begins this series of statements. For instance, verse 21, he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Now, that's from the Ten Commandments. That's from the law of Moses, right? And so Christ says, You've, you've heard, you know, that it's said, Thou shalt not kill. And, and then he says, And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Verse 22 But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. You see what Christ does? He says, You've heard that it's been said. Moses told you this. But I say, and, and he adds to that law in the sense that he, he's saying it's not enough for you just to restrain your flesh from killing somebody. Um, thank God that most people make it through life being able to restrain their fl- flesh from killing someone else. Right? But what Christ does is he magnifies the law and he says it's not enough for you just to restrain your flesh from doing that thing. Your heart has to be right. He he says that um, not only are you going to be in danger of judgment if you actually kill someone, he says if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're in danger of judgment. Now, you see, that's not a kind of law that you can enforce as a, you know, that a government can enforce or something like that. But he's showing that the issue is not the works of the flesh. The issue is the heart. He's showing you need a righteousness that exceeds just being in your, in your flesh, you know, able to restrain some of those, those uh, wicked impulses that you might have. And he does this, you know, many times here in this chapter. Uh, for instance, look at verse 27. He says, Ye have heard that it was said of the, by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Again, a quote from the law of Moses. Uh, But verse 28 says, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see, again, you know, most people go through life not committing adultery. But what does he say? That's not enough. He says, 
you can't claim to be righteous before God just because you haven't committed that sin. He says, your heart, if you've committed the sin in your heart, that shows you're unrighteous as well. Okay? Again, just the, the, uh, the failure of the law to be able to provide righteousness because it can't change the heart. Okay? Now, can you see from statements like that how somebody who was an unbeliever could look at this and say, he's trying to change what the law says. He's, he's saying, you understand the authority with which he's speaking here. A scribe wouldn't speak the way Christ speaks here. Uh, this, what the scribes would do and the Pharisees is they, they often were guilty of adding to the law, but they did it in a way of, of providing commentary on the law. But Christ here, he, I mean, think of that boldness and that authority of him to say, this is what the law says, but here's what I say, right? Now, for the unbeliever to hear something like that, you can see how they might say, look, he's, he's teaching blasphemy. He's claiming to have the same authority or even greater authority than what Moses had to say, this is what Moses said in the law, but here's what I say to you, okay? And, and I'm sure many of the religious people who heard this message missed the point of it because, you know, here, here he is, um, saying you got to do something even beyond what Moses said. And, and so when they make these accusations against Christ, realize that a lot of what the accusation is, is it's, a, it's a, the attitude of an unbeliever toward what Christ was saying. It's not really um, necessarily a statement about the, the truth or error of what Christ was saying, but that unbeliever not understanding the point of what Christ was teaching, they would say, look, he's, he's trying to change the law. And so here they come with these, these accusations. So if, if Stephen is here, if that accusation about, about destroying the temple and these accusations against Christ's doctrine, if that was enough to put Christ to death, here's Stephen teaching the same thing and claiming this man that was put to death as a criminal and as a blasphemer, that he is the Son of God, that he rose from the dead, then Stephen also, in their eyes, is a blasphemer and is worthy of death. And so they bring him there before the council, and it, it says there that the council, in verse 15, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, verse 15, as, as the council looks at him, there is even a, here a visible manifestation of the, the spirit with which he sp- speaks. And he's speaking, he's, he's full of the Holy Ghost here, and it says that they saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And what it seems to descri- be describing there is probably that there was, there was some kind of a, of a physical glow to his face. And so even as he's there before the council speaking to them, they're seeing this, this miraculous thing. Uh, you see why they can't resist the, the spirit and the power by which he speaks, right? Here's even this visible manifestation besides all of the miracles and healings and, and other things that are going on. And in chapter 7, then, verse 1, it says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And in verse 2, Stephen begins his 
address, which is really a sermon. It's, it's, not even, it's not even really a defense. He's being here, he's really here on trial before them. But rather than try and give some kind of a defense of himself, basically what he does, he, he preaches a sermon to them. And this is probably, probably the longest, it, it, I think it's definitely the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. Um, it's one of the longest in all of the New Testament, and it's a very significant thing. You know, when you come when you come through the Bible, uh, if if you've ever read the Bible through, just from Genesis all the way through, you you may have noticed that there are certain places in the Bible where it will stop and it will go back and give a history of Israel, and it'll kind of bring you up to date to how they got to where they're at in that point. We've talked before about uh, how, you know, all the way back in, in um, the book of Leviticus, in chapter 26, it lays out these, these uh, curses that God was going to bring on Israel, and how as you go through the Bible, you can identify where they went into the next stage of, of uh disobedience and of receiving that cursing from God. And very often, when Israel is moving into some new new period or, you know, there's some change taking place, you'll find that those are the points where it'll go back and give this history of Israel. And it'll show the righteousness of God in bringing additional cursing on them for their disobedience. And it'll go back and it'll, it'll give this history of how they've disobeyed God even though God has been continually faithful to them. And that's part of what Stephen does here. He goes back and he gives this history. And so that in itself shows you you're at a significant point in the book of Acts. There's, there's something as far as Israel's program that is about to change or go into a new phase here um, and, and for that reason, God uses Stephen and it records here as he goes back and gives a history of the disobedience of Israel. And in his message, um, Stephen really focuses on two individuals. Let's, let's read what Stephen says here. In Acts chapter 7, verse 2, And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in, in Haran. That, that uh, is one of those Hebrew words there in the Old Testament. It's, it has it with an H. There it has it with a, a CH, but it's, it's that, that Hebrew ch sound. We don't, have, we don't really have that in English. But uh, there he dwelt in, in Haran and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. 
And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Now, you see, he goes back and he starts with Abraham, but really he's, he's you know, filling in that information really to get to Joseph. And Joseph is one of the, the uh, key individuals that Stephen is going to focus on here. Now, there's a reason why he picks Joseph, and, there's a, and, and later he's going to talk about Moses as well. But uh, he, he tells them here about Joseph. Now, these are all things that this council would be well aware of, right? These are the, the people who know the scriptures. They've, they've studied these things. They know this history. But Stephen is here giving them a history lesson to remind them of some things that they ought to know. Uh, so he talks about Joseph. Verse 10, he says, and, and delivered him... Verse 9 says, but God was with him. In verse 10, and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into, into Sichem, or Shechem, and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. He talks about Joseph, and the key there is that he says that in verse 13, at the second time, Joseph was made known to them. Uh, remember that Joseph, he, Joseph had these dreams, right, about how he was going to rule over his brethren, and Joseph seemed to take some delight in telling his brethren about these dreams and visions that he had. And, his, and he, was, he was the favorite of his father, even though he was uh, one of the, the youngest sons. And his brothers hated him. And they sold him into slavery and told their father that he was dead. And uh, just basically lived their lives as if he was dead as well. But... Here, Stephen recalls these events about how God gave him favor, and Joseph actually rises to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And so when, when uh, his brethren later are in a time of distress, they come down to Egypt, and unknowingly they're dealing with their very own brother, and God uses him to be a deliverer of his brethren. And finally, he is made known to them, and they fulfill all of those all of those visions that Joseph had had as a young man, and they bow down to him, and they come down there into Egypt. Okay? Uh, now, now, verse 17, he's going to talk about another individual, another deliverer of Israel. Verse 17 says, But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. 
in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. When he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, again saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee? a ruler, and a judge over us. Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Now he describes there how uh, he even killed an Egyptian to protect some of his brethren, but when he tried to, to kind of be an arbitrator between them, you see they despised him and they didn't want him. They said, you know, will you be a ruler and a judge over us? And he goes away, and it's not until later he comes back and they accept him as the deliverer. You see those, those common points there with Joseph and with Moses. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.